Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What did three children see in the sky above New Mexico in 1945? After it crashed, what did they see inside? Was there a connection with the nearby Trinity atomic bomb test that year? Hello and welcome to the 905th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Oh, that would probably help. A train coming through the street. Well, no, that's not the train. That is a, a lovely, a lovely thing called feedback. Oh, that we that we have have here in the lovely world of audio. It's a great time for everybody. Mm. Um, and oh yeah, you know it would probably help if they could hear us. So welcome to the 905th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, uh, coming to you from WON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those lofty questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and Dad. Paul. And uh, we have a couple of very lovely guests along with us, so take it away, Father. Uh, coming to us via Skype today is Italian-American journalist and UFO legend Paul Lupizzi Harris. Widely published in North America and Europe, Paul is an investigative reporter specializing in UFO and extraterrestrial phenomena, which he has studied since 1979. She has rubbed elbows with the likes of Dr. J. Allen Hynek and high-ranking military officers. One of these was Colonel Philip J. Corso in Roswell, New Mexico. We've done the show on that, and we broadcast it uh, once, too. Uh, Paula's website is paulaharris.com, P-A-O-L-A, harris.com. Also joining us via Skype is our old friend Steve LaPlume, uh, who will help us co-host today, a close associate of Paula's. Steve was a witness to the Rendlesham Forest incidents of 1980 in England while he was a U.S. Air Force security policeman. So, Paula Harris and Steve LaPlume, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a pleasure, especially to do this with friend. Um It's always good to um, compare notes, and I'm very lucky because Steve read the book cover to cover. <laughs> yeah, right, so <laughs> he's more than prepared. Very good. So, um We'll start with just one question, uh, w- w- and then we'll, we'll turn it over to Steve for a while to let him ask uh, the rest of the questions uh, that he may have. Uh, Paula, please introduce us to the Trinity UFO crash of 1945, and then, as I say, uh, Steve can begin uh, with some questions. Okay. Uh, first of all, the Trinity book came out in May. Uh, it's co-authored with Jacques Vallée. I was very, very lucky to have Jacques come on board because I was working on this case in Socorro, New Mexico uh, for nine years. I was working on it for five years. No, Nothing came of it. I brought everybody in the world down there. The only person that bothered to do anything was Jaime Malsan from Mexico City who did an entire show. Hmm. The 1945 case is a crash case right after the atomic bomb. But we have the witness, the location, the materials, we have everything, unlike Roswell. And so what happened is I knew how big this case was. I kept going back there, and and by accident or coincidence or whatever you want to call it, four years ago, Jacques was into metals, looking at metals, and since we had a piece that the little boy had taken from the inside of the crash, he contacted me, and for four years he and I have been going back to try to piece this case together. And then with his incredible writing skills, he put together the book Trinity, the best-kept secret that came out in 
in uh, in May, and uh, and it's become a bestseller. It really has. The book is doing well, mostly in Europe. And this is crazy because all the interviews the Jacques and I have done have been from like Portugal, uh, the UK, Italy, Argentina, uh, and outside the country. Our own ufologist. Uh, have not really hooked on to it like like uh, he dreamed that they would, and I am so thrilled uh, that that Steve, who's a very good friend, read it because it was a lot of hard work. Hmm. Okay, then. Um, so, so we're dealing with a case in uh, 1945, two years before the Roswell crash, Absolutely. and three children, as I understand it because we talked about this before, uh, saw the craft come over and then crash. Is that is that not correct? Two children. Two no, children. Okay. Two. All yeah. right. So uh, so there we have it. Well, let's turn it over to Steve. Uh, ben, did you? Oh, I, I think you're thinking um, there were three technical witnesses. So there were the two children, then there was the pilot that flew over the crash site and saw the two kids. Or I'm now now I'm confused. Let, let, let's let Steve unconfuse me. There are three kids. I found the last witness last year. It was the niece, but well, we could let Steve. Well, let's let Steve on. bring some order to our. There's a lot of internet. To my thoughts. Okay. Kids. Go ahead, Steve. Okay. Okay. So um, right. So as Paula said, there were two witnesses, um, and it, it, if I got their uh, ages correct, one was nine and one was seven at the time. Correct. Absolutely, yes. Okay. And um, they were out looking for a um, uh, mother cow that had given birth to a calf, and they wanted to make sure the calf was uh, safe and that they could brand it before somebody else did. There was a big thunderstorm, and so when they were hiding under an outcropping of some rocks, that's when they – whoop, sorry, I hit my table. Um, that's when they um, heard this sonic boom, is that correct, from the crash? And they thought it was the bomb again because they had lived through – the real trauma of the atomic bomb on July 16th, 1945. They, they thought there was another bomb. Right, right. And now, according to, see, that's one thing I wanted to touch on. Um, you know, a lot of people go, okay, there's a nine and seven year old children. Obviously, they have a vivid imagination. But the fact is, is these children had to grow up quick because it was during the war and all of the adult males were off fighting the war. So they had no choice but to be the de facto cowboys for the ranch, correct? Absolutely. And I was shocked when uh, uh, Jose told me that he was driving a truck at the age of nine and delivering a hamburger to the Owl Barn Cafe and that he was riding a horse at the age of three. Uh, so, I mean, these were, these, this was the old days. Like, I mean, you go back to the way old days, the cowboy days, and it was not modern. The, the, the children, especially if they were male children, had to really do a lot of the work. Right. And just personally, um, where I'm living at right now, there's a lot of Amish, and the young Amish kids are working at a very early age as well, helping their, their families around the farm. So it's, it's not unheard of for something like that to be going on. All right. So, so they hear the sonic boom, they see some, um, did they see the smoke and they went towards it? And then that's when they discovered the crash site? Well, um, what happened is that they, they, they actually saw this thing hit the side of a tower and take out a piece of the tower. And then 
then they saw smoke in, in the valley. That's where the location is. We know where the exact location is, Steve, because when I went there, uh, you read all of this in the book, there was a circle of 30 uh, feet, which was what the craft was, 30 feet long, and there was nothing growing in the middle. There were all little flowers around it, so the actual mark of where that thing stopped is still there. It must have caused problems with the dirt because nothing was growing there. In the following year, Steve, and you and I have talked about this, they have not wanted me to go back, and they have planted poisonous plants on that circle. They have uh, come in with uh, uh, dirt and big cats and, and plotted over so the circle is not visible. I mean, the location has been altered in the last nine years. Mm. Okay. All right, now, when they first came upon this crash site, um, despite the fact that it was a horrific thunder and lightning storm and downpouring rain, um, they found that they couldn't even get close to the site at first because of the smoke from the fire that it started. Yeah, I'm going to add a little things that, that people should know, too. Right. Yes, the, what caught, the fires were on the mesquite trees, and, and the mesquite trees before the atomic bomb were six feet high. You could actually go underneath and get some shade. I've been there so many times now, and now they don't grow more than two feet. So those trees were all on fire. The, the craft itself was not. It was, it, it was a controlled landing. So the craft was uh, there, and a panel was missing. Right. Now, when they actually observed it, they said that the panel looks like it, it had just basically come off the craft, and they observed what inside. Well, what they were—they went down and they had the binoculars anyway. They had really good binoculars because they look at brands of cattle to see who's is who, and they saw little creatures. And and Jose uses the word sashaying, which you know, in a confused jock, is sashaying back and forth. But what he meant was. They weren't walking. They were floating. They were like uh, the three little creatures were like, uh, and they were gray with long spindly arms, went back and forth. And they were uh, they were screeching like they were in trouble or, uh, or hurt. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, I mean, I can't even imagine being seven or nine years old and seeing something like that. I'm not sure. What were the uh, what were the uh, overall effects when I mean this must have kind of blown their mind when they saw this I mean what were they even thinking because this is this is literally the first modern day crash site it was bef- two years before Roswell nobody'd ever heard of a UFO really at that point correct absolutely and I'm going to talk I'm going to you know I think it's important when we have a conversation that I also say when you had your sighting you already knew what a UFO was because you're in a culture where Kenneth Arnold already coined the term in 1947. Right. It was in television. You could see it. Uh, you could see them. There's magazines out there. And in the military, you all, there was also talk of UFOs when you were in England and Rendlesham. You, but if you're seven years old and you never even heard the term, you have no idea, and uh, you think it's an airplane. Okay, and you think that it's an airplane crash, except this has no wings. It's shaped like an avocado, and what you can see from the door is like nothing you ever saw. 
and at, at times, you know, I'd, I'd say to Jose, well, what did you think? And he said they were little kids like us. And yeah. I'd say, so you weren't afraid of them? And he goes, no. He said, I wasn't afraid at all. He said, I just heard the, the screeching and the high-pitched noise, and I wanted to go in and help them, but Remy started to cry. Remy is, is seven years old. He was scared. Well, also because their, their eyes were irritated. They were in a crash spot, so... Um, and then, so they went back home. But uh, Jose always teases me every time I go there. He goes, Paula, if I had gone gone in to help them, I wouldn't be with you right now. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I, I'm going to kind of throw a curveball here. Um, you mentioned that there were three creatures, and that they look like. Um, when I was reading the book, um, I don't know if it was Remy or um, it, it might have been Jose said that they looked like they had suits on, or that that was their skin. Um, now, I, I know that this is a controversial witness in my case, but um, when Larry said that he saw some creatures, he said the exact same thing. It seemed like they were floating, there were three of them, and they looked like little kids in snowsuits. So I'm not a big believer in coincidences. No, <laughs> so no. I was just wanted your thoughts on that. No, if that, I don't think Larry makes up stuff like that, especially when he came into your room at the date that he came in, you know, which is way before the public went out. Uh, Larry was telling the truth to you. You were there. Uh, I mean, it was on location with no agenda with Larry. I mean, he just came into your room and he told you that. And the thing is that I've had to think about the, the, the ETs. I've had to think about what's inside. Even, you know, whatever floated over your head had something inside it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've had to think about this. So and I, I'm not one of those ufologists that, you know, put everything in a box, reptilian, gray, and Nordic. I don't know what the heck it is. However, I've come to the conclusion that anything that's flying might use artificial intelligence AI. Therefore, if they're using AI, they may be clones or cloned AI, you know, cloned things that are programmed. And I, I, I hate using the word things because it's like disrespectful. But, um, you know, in 1945, they were beings. They did have telepathic um, uh, c- communication with the boys. They did because uh, he tells me, did you read, I don't know what, what part or it is, but he had a vision of people falling out of skyscrapers, and Remy had never seen a skyscraper. Right. I, I don't know what that is in, but that's the vision he had, and then Jose had communication with them too. But the kind of communication was psychic; it was it was thought transfer. It wasn't words. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so let's move forward. So they went back. They told the parents, the sheriff. They went out and they looked at the site, and the, then the military got involved. Now, you know, it, it's World War Two. I think all the frontline troops are, you know, they're off fighting. So the troops that actually would have responded probably weren't maybe the top-notch troops. And based off of what Jose had said in your interview, um, they were kind of lackadaisical, picking up stuff. They'd just leave the craft there, and they'd go to the uh, local uh, watering hole and get food and eat. And um, But then again, it's the first time there was ever a UFO crash. So um, it seemed like the military really didn't have a, a stellar response to this incident. So I was just wondering your thoughts on all that. Well, first of all, you were in the military. (laughs) (laughs) At at that age, they were all young boys. I mean, they're young boys. 
they were part of the Manhattan Project, and they had never seen a UFO. They, maybe they didn't. They didn't even know it was a UFO. Maybe they thought it was like a, a prototype of some airplane. I mean, you're looking at an avocado-shaped thing with the dome, right? Yeah. So you don't. You you didn't see the ET. So you just say we're supposed to clean up this stuff and. And so they had jeeps there with the with the country music going, and, and the kids heard the country music, and they were sick and tired of having to pick up every piece. So they took their foot, they made like a berm, and and just pushed with their feet the pieces in the in the berm there that they made with their foot. And that's been the problem all these years because if truly they did that, there's pieces out hanging out in that location. And somebody doesn't want us going digging there, obviously. And the other thing is that that um, the army did get there before Apodaca and Faustino, the father and the and the uh, what do you call it, uh, Sheriff Apodaca, got there because they couldn't find the craft at first, and it was filled with brush. They put they threw brush on it so that it was covering you couldn't see it from the air. So when they did see it. On the on the day that the boys and Apodaca and the father went, when they did see it, the now this is amazing because there's no story like this. The the father and Sheriff Apodaca go inside and they're walking around inside. I don't even know a story like that. So the boys they're telling the boys you you're not going to talk about this. And they went inside. They never told the boys what they saw. Um, so we have three people that have been inside a craft. We have Sheriff Apodaca, and I don't get to these people soon enough, Steve, because if I had gotten to, to them even 25 years before that, I could have found Sheriff Apodaca, and I and and Faustino's dead, and I you know all I could do is go to the cemetery and put flowers on his grave, which Jack and I did, but you know as I'm looking at this grave, Steve, I'm going, oh my God, this is like real people, and this really happened. And I didn't get here fast enough. Right now, now one thing led to another. They they finally uh, make a road. They um, get a low boy in there. They put the craft on there at an angle so they could get under bridges. And then Jose decides, which was a custom back then, from what I understand. He goes in and he gets a souvenir, and he wants a souvenir because when the men go off to war, they get a memento from those men because they just might never return. So it wasn't unheard of for them to get a memento, correct? Yeah. Plus, I mean, those guys, the boys, found it. I mean, it was it was like the that's our stuff, and they watched the the recovery for seven days. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of things: when the army came to, because that property belonged to Jose's dad, he had leased it from the Bureau of Land Management. So um, when they came to the door, they said, "Look." We have to cut your gate because we have to take out a weather balloon. Well, I've been to that gate so many times. I mean, the cut on that is like, uh, you know, 50, 50 feet. And, and so uh, Faustino knew. He said, can't you use the cattle guard, which is six feet? You know, he, they had picked up weather balloons uh, the, while they were on horses out in those, you know, in those 80,000 acres. So... I mean, ironically, can you believe this? Like the head of the the, the recovery unit, who's in the military, uh, says we are taking out a weather balloon. Yeah, a fifty ton, five hundred. I, I, I think he, Jacques said it was fifty tons. I forgot 
what how much he measured. He did all the measuring of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Fausto uh, sent Jose in the back and said, get all the weather, weather balloons so we can give them back to the Army. <laughs> so they hate the weather balloons that they have picked up. You know how crazy that is? They yeah. picked up balloons. They're handing them back to the Army, and the Army's saying, we got to cut your gate and create a road be- to take out this weather balloon. Right, right. Now, now, the piece that they took off um, gets basically shoved up in an attic for a couple of decades, and then here comes Paula Harris going, what do you mean you have a piece of the craft? So can you tell me a little bit about what did you find when you did the analysis on this piece of metal? Well, can I, can I go backwards a little bit? Sure, yeah. Two boys got, did something they, they shouldn't have done. That's why they're quiet for 60 years. They stole something. Well, I'm not going to use the word stole. They they bought, borrowed something from the inside of the craft. They borrowed it. Um, so what the Army actually had in the and they came to the father and said, did your kids take anything? And the father didn't know. They put it under the floorboards of the sheep herder shack, shack um, Steve, the floorboards. So they picked up the So the sheep herder, who was kind of a very simple man, goes in to see uh, Mr. Baca, and he says, I have to move out of here uh, because something weird happened last night. This, this The paranormal around this is incredible. Incredible. And the, and so what happened is the sheep herder said three little homositos came through the wall looking for the tesoro, which is what the boys had called the, the, the souvenir, the tesoro. And, of course, we got a problem, Houston, here, because Jacques has done an analysis, and on a, on a superficial basis, it's a piece of, of aluminum alloy that's known called I think he said it's aluminum, uh, and in and, aluminum. And I forgot how he pronounced it. It's in the book. But why are the three little men coming through trying to get a piece that possibly the army put there for the recovery? Because Jock's theory is that the army uh, fastened, because there were no nails and no screws, this piece on this plaque that's on the inside of the craft, that the army used it. Jose does not believe that. He believes because it was a rotating piece that it was part of the navigation system. Jacques' uh, contemporaries that are looking at it, because this piece is in Silicon Valley, it's near Stanford, I mean, they're looking at it. They see some what's called hairs, some very strange-looking they are calling it hairs. They don't, um, Jaime Maussan saw those hairs also when he had the piece, a piece of the piece analyzed. And Jaime's idea is that it's um, uh, carbon nanotubes that are in there. If that's true, if they're going to find other stuff, then that isn't an earthly piece, Steve. And those three little men that are coming through the wall aren't looking for some piece that the Army put. So it's very confusing because when you get a story that's nuts and bolts and then all the weirdness comes in, like the paranormal, then we don't know where to go. Right, right. Now, I, I also read in the book that um, um, Jacques Vallée, he, he kind of believes in, I guess, parallel universes. Or actually, he, he had mentioned in the book that he felt like somebody was watching us. Um, I, I'd like you to expand on that because I, I also believe that, um, you know, if – 
if there's parallel universes, then maybe somebody from a future us might be going, hey, you guys are playing with atomic bombs. You might want to knock it off. Maybe they're sending a probe or something to, you know, keep an eye on us. Or I don't know. Can, I'm just kind of interested in your thoughts on that. Well, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're an outsider, and and you know, and, and I might be a little off, you know, well, but. Okay, well, actually, my thoughts on that would be more, um, I, I had a friend of mine that was involved in the remote viewing program that the Army was involved with, and they talked with some of their um, some of their viewers that were, you know, proven they, that they can really do this, and they asked them what UFOs were, and they said that they're us from the future, and that there was a radiation event far in the future, and they're coming back to, uh, um, I guess, correct it, or I don't keep an eye on it. He wasn't real clear on that. So... Um, I don't know, it, it just seems pretty odd that whenever there's a radiation event or uh, something similar to that, then UFOs just happen to be showing up, you know. I mean, we never saw any. We never saw anything until, you know, they dropped a bomb on Japan. Okay, uh, I'm going to have to uh, come in here and just, we're going to take our bottom of the hour break here. Great conversation. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and special guest co-host Steve LaPlume and guest Paul P.Z. Harris. Here on WOON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade. The finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Benino on WON Radio. Uh, AM and FM, and uh, we are uh, enjoying a great conversation here, uh, led right now by Steve LaPlume, uh, one of our guest co-hosts, and Paul Lupizzi Harris, our guest on the 1945, very little known Trinity UFO, as we call it, Trinity UFO crash in New Mexico, and the um, children who were lucky or unlucky enough to witness it and to have an artifact. Now, uh, I just wanted to ask one question that's coming in from listeners: Do we have a photograph of that artifact anywhere? Yes. <laughs> how, how can I tell you? I mean, I, I mean, where, where, where do I? I can, I can send it to you. I can. Where can I? How can we do this on the radio? You, you could hold it up to the camera because oh. there is a television feed that goes out and it gets recorded. So now uh, we tell you, right? But yeah, you you can uh, if you, if you can send it, we can. Um, I don't know if we can put it up on the screen or we can at least put it on the talking points page for the show. Anything, anything is possible, Father. Yes, with a little ingenuity <laughs> yes. and, and some technical know-how. Right. What okay. he said. Can I email it to you? Uh, the photos of it and the testing of it. Can I email it to you? Like after we're done, and, and can yeah, okay, yeah, it might get complicated otherwise. And then we'll we'll put it on the um, uh, talking points. Uh, we'll, we'll make a talking points page sure, on website, the website, maybe 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 Facebook group. Or, yeah, yeah, or, we, or yeah. I'll put it we'll, on the Facebook page. We'll, sure, we'll figure it out. Yeah, but we'll do it. But thank you. Yeah, so that would be great. 
So, uh, Steve, uh, continue, if you would. All right, sure. All right, uh, so Paul, can, yeah. can, can, because this is a paranormal show, can I say some things about the paranormal that are not in the book? And Jacques wouldn't let me put them in there because he, <laughs> he said the scientific community would go, you know, berserk. And But this is the truth. I mean, I've been working on it for nine years. Uh, and you need to know, and I think Paul uh, and his son need to know, that um, there was paranormal stuff there, and I will tell you about it. It's not in the book, but, you know, you got to know. Yeah, by all means, yeah, of course. All Please right. Expand. Okay, so when when uh, Jose was nine years old, he was riding his sta- stallion, uh, and he took me to a location where he saw a big ape. Uh, which he called the big monkey, uh, jump over a fence. And we're obviously talking about Bigfoot. And so, and he said, look at that fence over there. He said, this big ape jumped over that fence. And he said, my stallion reared up. He's not making this up. So, because uh, he, you know, he, he's a, an ex-state trooper for California. I mean, the guy is very stable. He's been shot twice. Uh, you know, one of the bullets is still in him. I mean, this is a real, you know, solid guy. And the other thing, he and his wife died of, of um, kidney failure. He and his wife were driving in 1960, uh, 1960s by that location, and his wife took a picture on a hill. And I, I drive by that hill on the way down to the, uh, the crash site, and there was a Confederate soldier in the picture. Oh, my. Hmm. So... We got two problems here, Houston. We got Confederate soldier in the picture that's really there. Then we got uh, a uh, a Bigfoot that jumps over a fence in the location. That location was a sacred, uh, you know, religious place for the Apache. They did ceremonies there. So right there, that should tell you there's some kind of portal or something. Uh, Native American, you know, ceremonies right there where it crashed. And then, um, <laughs> and I'm not going to show you the picture for about two to three years. When I was doing the report on this in Laughlin, and all the people that worked on this case were standing for a portrait, a head appears behind me of a man that was not there. I've seen that picture, and it's pretty disturbing. <laughs> it's disturbing. You've seen the picture, right? Yeah, I don't correct. Yeah. I don't want to show it for at least two years until the book is out there, because it's going to get people um, It's going to get people off track, and Jacques would not like that. He wants the scientific community to get involved in UFOs. And he doesn't want to mess it up with a lot of different things. And I don't blame him. But I, this is a paranormal show, Paul. So mm-hmm. I tell you that around something like this, the paranormal loves it and gets involved. Very so, common, yes. Yeah, you need to know this because uh, it's not something that I, I, I want and it's not something that I anticipated. But that craft was in the same shape of Jumbo and Fat Boy. It was of a cut the, of the, the, the nicknames for the atomic bombs. Yes, the yeah. casings. Yeah. The casings, yes. And then it was the same weight. 
And uh, and so the story is dead for 60 years until I come along. So did they know that Jacques and I were going to write a book about this? I couldn't do it alone because I was working on it for five years. Nobody was paying attention to anything I was doing. So then what? I mean, you're talking about people from the future, Steve. Like, did they know that that whatever crashed there was a message to the world about using nuclear and then go to your situation? You know, the area at the height of the Cold War when we're getting ready to nuke each other off the face of the earth. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, um, the uh, craft that uh, Penniston had drawn and the one that's replicated out in the forest there right now is very similar to what um, Jose described with the bubble on top and the shape of it as well. So, again, the similarity is just, I mean... It referred to the Rendlesham Forest case of 1980. Correct. correct. Yeah. And, 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 Paul, you, you had mentioned many times before I've heard you talk about whenever there's a UFO incident, it seems Bigfoot sightings are very prevalent at the same time. Like there's some sort of a, uh, uh, a portal or a flap, I think you called it. Yeah, the flap area, I'm thinking particularly of Pennsylvania, where we've uh, seen UFOs and got them on video, and uh, several of us have had Bigfoot encounters. Uh, there seemed to be a, a connection by means of the processes, I, we think, uh, behind the paranormal, if you will, that... Uh, we have a title, you know, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that uh, allow these things to manifest. You know, things that are not ordinarily associated with one another. Um, UFO people never used to look at what are now known as crossover phenomena. They, as Paula described, you know, the guys coming through the walls and this sort of thing. Uh, would have been, um, and I, I, I was involved in early cases where that was just dismissed, you know, and uh, the, well, and from the ghost type people, the UFO uh, incidents w- were dismissed, and that that was a serious mistake, I think, because uh, these things are, uh, as in other flap areas like the Mothman phenomenon, things of that kind, uh, there were uh, certainly connections. So, uh, really uh, relate to what Paul is saying here. Mm-hmm. All right. Um- so I know we're getting short on time here. So well, yeah, we want to get to some listener questions, but you know, go ahead and right, finish right. up, Steve. You're doing a terrific job. Indeed. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so we have a third witness, which is a female, and she was talking about how they took some of the debris from the crash and would um, actually use it as ornamental on their Christmas trees. I love that. I, I'm, yeah, I'm really interested in that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, Jose had told me that, and that 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 when the thing hit the tower, it spewed out what he called the angel hair or spider web. So picture angel hair or spider web. And he and Remy went and gathered it all because it was lit up in purple, pink, and green. It was lit up. And they they even tried to burn it. I mean, Jose is so ingenious. He took a torch and tried to burn it. I mean, he was playing with it. And when they brought it home, it was so pretty. And they didn't have electricity in some of the rooms that, that it would be all lit up. So they, they decorated the Christmas trees and stuff. <laughs> and, but their neighbors saw it on the windows because they put it on the windows, too. And they came and gave it to the neighbors, too. So the whole town has what looks like fiber optics from a UFO crash, which I think is an excellent opening for some Spielberg movie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Eating their Christmas trees with this stuff that comes out 
and, and of course, we don't have that 1945. We, you know, there is a NASA scientist that has been down there with us, and he's blown away by it, by the idea. Now, if I could find some of those people that kept their Christmas tree decorations for 70 years, and I could get some of that, you imagine? Can you imagine? Uh, this would be like the biggest UFO story ever if I could get it. Um, and uh, Steve, you're right. I'm glad you mentioned Sabrina because she came up in the last year when when uh, Jacques and I were down there and we were sitting outside, uh, you know, he, uh, what's his name's trailer, Jose's trailer. He, and he goes, well, my niece was at there at the time and she was living with my father. Well, when I went to talk to the niece, she had details that Jose had no idea because Jose at 17 went to the Korean War. So the niece, Sabrina, tells me, oh, yeah. We had long strips of aluminum that we used to, you know, bunch up and then it went back to the regular shape. I said, long strips? She said, yeah, uh, we didn't have slinkies or anything in those days, so we used to use them as toys. So it seems good old Faustino, the father, went out on his horse and found stuff he never told his son about. Because she she was living as a seven-year-old with the father and the grandmother there. You mean the father and the mother was her grandparents and she also went to the crash site and saw it was scorched. She said the whole thing was scorched. Then she also said that the army used to come in the back door for many years to check on the family. Hmm. So, yeah, back door. <clears throat> and Tina used to say, why don't you come in the front door? So at that time, there was only the army. There wasn't the Army Air Force. I mean, it was Army Air Force. It was not an Air Force. So can't go in Blue Book. So where did this thing go? Where did the craft go? And where is the file? Well, that's when Jacques gets into the idea that it, it's in the Atomic Energy Commission files because this is too close to the atomic bomb one month after. That is the highest classification you can have. I'm sure Oppenheimer knew. You know, I'm sure everybody, the Manhattan Pride, they would have had to know. And it was one month later that they had a problem with UFOs. Um, even though nobody knows what's really going on. So I'm glad, Steve, you asked me about if they're there, us from the future or if it's a deliberate message. And that's why I think the case is important, because it is. The answer is absolutely. Okay. Well, let's go to a question hopefully we'll have time for from uh, our very, um, I, think, I think he's going to be a co-host here soon. He doesn't know it yet. Uh, Peter from uh, Peter Shelley from Columbia, South America, and he has a couple of questions. Ben, if you would. Sure thing. Uh, the pervasive Peter uh, pens to us. There we go. I was trying to get some more alliterations in there. Mm. Um, Paula, I watched three interviews with you and Jacques Vallée, including uh, uh, your, your channel and Paul's. Uh, I feel this is a very interesting and uh, mysterious case. Question one. There have been reports in the media where tests from White Sands have uh, gone off course and crashed. Um, For example, in May 1947, a German V-2 rocket was launched and veering off course, crashed in Mexico. Uh, Why couldn't the 1945 crash have been something like that? Question mark. Uh, I suggest that the event could have been a, uh, a test of a piloted V. A v German or V two German rocket um, has happened historically in 1944 and dramatized uh, in a movie called Operation Crossbow. This sequence depicts the actual German test uh, where female pilot uh, Hannah Reich 
in a transparent dome on the uh, top rear end of the V1 is launched, experiences vibration and instability, and crashes. Uh, note, by 1945, the Allies had recovered V1s and were mass-produced copies uh, for the planned Japanese invasion. That isn't a question. That is a long, uh, uh, you know, I mean, a question is a question. <laughs> not, not a question and a solution. Okay? If you want me to answer a question, give me a question. Because if you read the book, and I'm hoping that you're asking me a question because you read the book, you'll know it was oval-shaped, they were not launching rockets. They were they were preparing the atomic bomb. It was the Manhattan Project. So we're dealing with the time when we're going that is so secret that the, that uh, they had created Los Alamos. See, we have to look at history here. This isn't a V two like NASA down in in in, uh, in in Florida. This is the atomic bomb being launched. And if it's an avocado-shaped craft, I don't know, you know, how that is even a possibility. And if there's beings inside, and we believe, we do believe, someone as big and great and important as Jacques Vallée is not going to do a book on a V-shape, on a V-8 rocket that went off course, okay? So, and there's nine years, nine years of research, and not only that, uh, 1945, we weren't doing that. We weren't we weren't sending up the uh, rockets yet. Uh, they were uh, right now. You got to look at 1945, the year, and we had just uh, shot off the atomic bomb, which went into other dimensions. <coughs> So all you got is somebody is upset that we discovered nuclear because it goes into their territory. And I only say somebody because you notice in this interview that Steve and I did, I did not name aliens. I did not say they came from Alpha Centauri. I did not even just go into that. I went into an occasion on a timeline that changed this planet. And then Steve asked uh, also, um, um, does it affect something else? And of course, of course, we are playing a chess game with nuclear energy where the only way to win is checkmate. Okay. Well, if we... Uh, I mean, that kind, another- kind of answered uh, uh, question two a little, a little bit. I say, I say a little bit. Only because this this refers mostly to the beings inside the craft, um, which I, I expect, Paula, your answer will probably be very similar. <laughs> but you know what? We promised we'd read his questions, so we will. Um, could the occupants of the object have been human beings in aviator clothing? I'm not even going to answer that. Fair enough. Uh, so the third question... Is uh, you and Jacques have a difference in opinion on the nature of the artifact uh, recovered from the or yeah recovered from the object? Um, uh, I've seen image of it, images of it, and to me it looks completely man-made. Uh, Jacques says the the holes in the uh, metric system 
supports the theory that the main object was a German rocket. Please explain what you think and why. Well, I think uh, Paul made that clear. But. Yeah, that's kind of what I said. He kind of answered all the other other questions yeah. with with that. So we'll we'll just call this case closed, I suppose. <laughs> Can I? Okay, and I, I will say that thank you, Paula, for the offer of sending the photos uh, by email. We'll, we'll certainly post those so people can see them. But yes, you may you may take a swing. Yes. May I encourage people to read the book before they ask? First of all, the, the, the only thing that was in the metric system was the artifact. The only thing, and it's the holes in the artifact that are in the metric system. So... If the artifact, which is one little piece inside, is in the metric system, doesn't mean it's a German rocket. Okay, so what we have to do, first of all, I think, now German could be involved. Germany could be involved. I will go there. Uh, But not when you have three creatures that are interacting with children and the children would know if they were human. Uh, and and uh, these things were, I mean, they described them as standing up fire ants because their eyes were tear-dropped and looked like fire ant eyes. I don't think that's human. But, you know, one of the things I want to encourage people to do, because I'm a teacher and I have a master's in education, is read the book. <laughs> because when you read the book, if I were to give you a test, I would have to ask you specific questions for the book. And I know that Steve is building a house right now, and his 24 hours, he's so busy in his 24 hours, like he's, like, super busy. And, Steve, can I thank you for doing this? Because you read the book cover to cover, and I I was so happy because I knew you were going to ask me questions from the book, which is easier for me to d- deal with than hypothetical, you know, videos, because 95% of everybody gets their information off YouTube. They, they'll they look at an interview or they'll, they'll get somebody's rehashed, digested uh, version of something, and I can't, it's very hard for me because we worked so hard on this book, we had like something like 20 edits before it came out to make sure that, I mean, we corrected everything uh, as much as we could. Now, Jacques did all the technical stuff, but uh, I did only the interviews. But he is so grateful to me because he never got to meet Remy Baca because Remy Baca died. Um, But thank you for reading the book. Uh, I really am grateful. Well, the real question for Steve is uh, in, in building his house, is he using the metric system? <laughs> no, I'm using the standard system. All right. Here. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, that, that does bring up a good point, though. Um, if this is something from the future, then wouldn't it stand a reason they'd be using the metric system since the rest of the world is using it? Napoleonic nonsense. I mean, to be fair, it is incredibly accurate. Like, I think. Yeah, I know. Well, the, the equivalent of, like, one millimeter is, like, I think, um, like, two or, like,. 132nd or something. It's it's very hard to convert into the imperial system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I was in Canada when they went, went to the metric system, and it wasn't pretty. Mm. But anyway, uh, Paula, what is your next step in this case? Either for you or for you and Jacques. Or you, Jacques, and Steve, for that matter. <laughs> well, uh, we have to go back there, obviously. 
we're taking, you know, the NASA scientists is really interested in, in, uh, in, in the description of the, I mean, okay, I, I'm going to go back again. We have long strips of aluminum metal that is memory metal. We have something that looks like fiber optics. We have artifacts from the case, and they're really, really interested in, in looking at that. And, uh, and also, um, you know, maybe we'll get somebody to come out of the woodwork. Oh, well, maybe some of the people in the, in the, that had the, the stuff on the Christmas trees will read it. Maybe some of the people that were involved that are still alive after 75 years will come and say, I, actually, I just heard from the son of the pilot uh, that flew over. I just heard from the son. He just wrote. He said, I saw the book. My father did fly over that area. It was his last, his last uh, recovery, his last work. And I just heard from him. So that's the next step. And as far as Steve, Steve is a good friend. So I, I was having some hard time, just kept going back to New Mexico. And I couldn't talk about it because it was top secret. So Steve has been a good friend to try to support me to get this done. Mm. Now, have you had any blowback from the government on this or from, or from, from anyone? You have like... Uh you know, uh, men in black uh, barreling out of your closets or anything. Because I mean, what, yeah, one would expect there would be some some uh, resistance to some of this. What's happened, or if anything? Well, what happened was that that when I found Sabrina, I had made an appointment for Jacques to question her in Los Angeles, and I was going to, and somebody called her and said. Um, we're coming, Paula Harris is not coming anymore, we're going to take care of this. So she got a call like that and said, did you send somebody else? And I said, no, I didn't send anybody else. Uh, so I don't know what, I, obviously they're listening to the phone. And then when Clifford Stone died and he gave me his archive, uh, which is now in Jacques' house, he has 17 boxes of Clifford Stone's crash retrieval stuff, uh, three men went to his door in black vans and said, uh, Paula Harris sent us here to get the, get the stuff. Of course, I didn't. Uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, Clifford said, no, uh, you're not going to get anything. She didn't send you here. So I don't know. Things like that have been happening, Paul. Uh, of course, thank God I have Steve to talk to about this because it, it got really hairy. I, I, um, didn't uh, I, I didn't you know expect that, but the, his files are safely in Jacques' apartment, and there's 17 boxes of, of, of files. These things are historical; they're not entertainment. They're going to Rice University. People can go to a university to see all of this, including the piece in the future. Okay, good. Now, just uh, sum up, if you would, tell us about your website, where people can get the book. Trinity, the best kept secret. Okay, the book is going to be in four languages. Actually, it's in French, Spanish, Italian, and English. It's on Amazon. the The Spanish is coming out in a month, and my website is www.paolaharris.com. Excellent and very good. Uh, now we uh, we'll move to our announcements now because we're pretty much uh, running out of time here, but. Uh, we will, as I say, post the photos that Paula will graciously uh, 
offered to send us, and uh, people will be able to see those. So, uh, you can hear our interview with both authors of Trinity, The Best Kept Secret, Paula and Dr. Valet, on the Behind the Paranormal Case Files YouTube channel. That's been up for about two weeks, and uh, a lot of people are listening to it, and we invite you to do the same. Indeed. And uh, we'll be present at the Western Connecticut UFO Conference during the last week of October this year, and that'll be uh, a mostly virtual event. Uh, it's kind of a, a hybrid event at the uh, Danbury, Connecticut Public Library on Saturday, October 30th. Uh, more information to follow. Uh, I'll be presenting a paranormal overview at the Arizona Dowsing Conference at the Little America Hotel in Flagstaff on Friday, October 8th. More information to come on that. And good news on the website front. All regular recorded radio broadcasts of Behind the Paranormal from CBS Achieve Radio and here on WON, AM and FM, uh, we have, or have been restored in the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, also, uh, fully restored are the uh, Return to Rendlesham series from 2010 and uh, 2011 on CBS Radio and are all related shows along with Achieve Radio monthly two-hour specials uh, from 2009. Uh, still working on restoring other shows, podcasts, and interviews, but that will be done relatively soon. Yeah, we're getting there. Um, our show now is, it has its own app. It's uh, rather bare bones, but it has uh, connections with our most recent shows. And we plan to add features to that as we go once we figure out, figure out how to do it. It should be in the Apple and Google store soon. And there's a link at BehindTheParanormal.com right on the first uh, homepage there if you'd like to download the app now. And uh, you can also check out our books along with those of our guest co-hosts at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. Where you can also find out more about the show along with our many cases over the years, our uh, public appearances and how to book us and some of our 900 plus free recorded shows now restored on the uh, website as mentioned earlier. And I also should have mentioned that every time Paula is on, she has a real Providence, Rhode Island connections here, and we're always proud to have her. And, and uh, her story is amazing. And the, if there are local folks who knew Paula or her, or her dad, uh, we, everybody I'm sure sends greetings. I mean, Rhode Island is like one big small town. It is, yeah, yeah, very small. So uh, we have a charity page uh, at BehindTheParanormal.com. We encourage you to visit that. The number of charities who's, uh, who, who um, the people who run them, we know personally. We know it goes to the right place. So what's on the uh, menu for next week, Ben? Well, on the menu, uh, we're cooking up some good stuff, and that's uh, August 1st. We will present a tribute to the late, great Timothy Green Beckley, a uh, 60-year UFO legend and a beloved guest co-host on our show. Uh, joining us as a guest co-host will be Tim Schwartz. Uh, Tim Beckley's co-host for many years, who has now found a home with us. And uh, there will be many great surprise callers, so be sure to tune in for that. Yeah, t- Tim is uh, Tim Swartz is a, is a really lovely person, real gentleman, and uh, we're very proud to have added him to our uh, stable of, of guest co-hosts. I always got a kick out of it, it was uh, Tim and Tim. Tim and Tim, <laughs> yes. How many Tims can, uh, can fit on the head of a pin? Mm. Anyway, we leave you today with a thought from that darling 13th century Persian theologian Rumi. It's your road and yours alone. Others may walk it with you, but no one can walk it for you. I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno, and uh, we still have a couple of seconds here. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful time, and we definitely encourage you to, to keep listening and keep your eye on the skies as our... As our, our great keep friend. watching the skies. Yep, yes, yep. Joe so, Ferrier. So keep watching the skies and uh, join us next time on our cosmic journey. And we'll see you next time on Behind the Paranormal.
Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal.